I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He was drunk. He needs a mirror. I mean... Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. In case of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Mark Kenny, and welcome to the 200th episode of Democracy Sausage and the very first one to be recorded before a live audience. What do you think of that? 200 episodes, pretty good. <laughs> Can I start by acknowledging the land on which we meet, the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to any First Nations peoples present or listening around the country? Democracy Sausage began in the campaign period in the 2019 election and has continued to grow through the years since, so it seems fairly apt that we should be sitting here doing the 200th episode, reaching this milestone in the 2022 election campaign. Perhaps, arguably, I've said this uh, before, I've said this on the podcast, I think, arguably the most important election we've seen since 1972, which is 50 years and I'm happy to be tested on that uh, if anyone has a, uh, a you know a serious objection to it. As usual, usual, we've assembled a great panel for our discussion. First, my friend and regular partner on at the hot plate, Dr. Maria Teflaga. She's a political scientist, lecturer, and director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Welcome, Maria. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Also along with us, this time for the first time, is Yasmin Poole, an outstanding ANU alumna. Uh, she's also a youth advocate. Uh, she's a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, you've probably seen her on various programs on television, Q&A, The Drum, those kinds of things. Uh, and she's uh, therefore a budding political uh, and, and public intellectual. Yasmin, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Hey, Mark. Great to be with you. And finally, in the middle, Ross Solly is a former ABC political journalist up in the press gallery where I was at uh, for many years. Uh, he's an author and a presenter on ABC Radio, currently in Canberra. Ross, welcome to Democracy Sausage, also for the first time. Thank you very much, Mark, and congratulations on your 200th episode, which I think a lot of people in the room here were surprised you got past the third one. So well done. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think well, if you went I back. I joined after the third one, so that's, 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 that's why. That's when it took a positive turn. It was on life support at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> Maria rescued it. That's true. Um, now, look, tonight, after, after this, there's a, a far less important debate going on that is between the two leaders who are meeting face to face on Sky Television in the Sky News Career Mail People's Forum in Brisbane. Maria, let's start with you. What, what, is the, what, is the, what is an election campaign as a political scientist? What is an election campaign and how important are these kind of set piece, these performative aspects of the campaign that come up? We've got the debates. Obviously, we have the campaign launches. We have these daily sort of press conferences that, that the leaders do. Are they really changing the way people think about politics or think about the candidates? So to disappoint everyone, I think 
most of the empirical evidence tends to suggest that that campaigns don't really matter all that much. Um, and <laughs> and in many ways, what campaigns kind of are are they're part of the extension of the theatre of of politics. Um, but I guess the sort of most uh, basic definition is is there's sort of like a formal sort of suspension of parliament, um, suspension of executive government. Um, you know, government goes into to hiatus, and the people get the chance to, I guess truly focus on the alternative visions uh, for the future that the parties are notionally supposed to offer us. However, you've all been watching the campaign and you'll probably gather that there isn't that much um, talk about the future and that's because much of what governs how campaigns function is really their relationship to to technology. So before we had radio, people used to go to rallies and people used to heckle leaders and leaders used to be funny because they were heckled all the time, you know, um, we then went through the age of television and messages were centralised because that was really efficient for parties. They got fax machines. They could tell everyone to say the same stuff. Before then, you know, there were more rogue elements. And now in the age of social media, we can kind of see that discipline kind of breaking down and we can see parties effectively trying to kind of micro-target audiences and say one thing at, to one audience and and another to, to others. Um, and... Much of this is difficult for us to observe and we don't always know exactly what the effects of some of these forms of, um, you know, micro-targeting that are, that are going on. So um, campaigns probably don't matter um, because people probably have made up their minds, broadly speaking, but there is always a cohort who, who do make up their mind um, in, the, in the polling booth and I guess it matters for them. Ross, there's a lot of people who haven't made up their minds, as Maria says, uh, in election campaigns. We hear Vox Pops. I heard a couple as we were driving back here tonight, um, uh, you know, someone was saying, I think it was on news radio, saying, nope, haven't looked at it at all, don't know who's running, uh, that kind of thing. There, there are quite a lot of voters who are disengaged from politics on an ongoing basis. But because we have compulsory voting, they have to at some point sort of turn up and that's one of the strengths of compulsory voting. I guess it's also one of the weaknesses as well, depending on what they do with their vote, how seriously they take it. But um, I wonder, going off what Maria's saying, is is it is that a concern for one thing? And, and secondly, are election campaigns in a sense a kind of a, a potentially high-risk moment for the political candidates? There's not a whole lot to be gained but a fair bit to be lost, as we saw from uh, the way the Labor leaders' uh, unemployment gaffe was uh, reported last week. Yeah, I think what Maria was saying is is right. I think that um, I'm surprised when people say they still haven't made their mind up. I think I, if that's the case, um, they probably have not a lot of interest in politics. Politics has become so divided in Australia. You're either one way or the you're the other. There aren't many people who are who are sort of swaying between one or or the other direction. Um, they've become so staged managed now, these election campaigns, that each political party will send out an advance party to make sure that the, the places they're going to are full of friendly faces. Um, well, we all remember that that photo of Tony Abbott with reject shop written above. <laughs> <you know. laughs> uh, and remember when Who he, didn't advance yeah, that, yeah. And remember when someone told him, didn't tell him that that was an onion and he picked it up and <laughs> ate it and be- because he had to pretend that he does that all the time, now everybody just comes up and gives him onions and says, Tony, I love your work. Here's an onion. Can you chew on this? Oh, my God, not another one. Um, but there was the famous, I think, was it Paul Keating that, that walked into the wrong pie shop? Yes, um, yes. Because the, the advance party had gone out and they'd said to him, uh, when we go into this shopping centre, it looked like you're surprised to be here. Um, and then going to Pete's Pies because Pete's a big fan and he's going to love you and it's going to be a great opportunity. But unfortunately, he went into Bob's Pies. Yeah, and Bob wasn't happy. Bob hated Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Hawke hated Paul and Bob's Pies hated Paul. Um, of so- course, the most celebrated one in recent times was the um, – the uh, you know the land what what was that hotel chain in in the US where um, Trump's campaign well, went to and, and um, the former the former mayor of, of um, yeah, New Rudy, York Rudy, Rudy Giuliani yeah. hasn't he gone well um, Rudy stood outside what he thought was going to be a hotel and it turned out to be a dumpster place yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean that's just crazy that that could happen in this day and age but to go back to your question. Um, 
th- there's very little chance now that that politicians are going to come across real people who have real concerns. Um, and that's why the other night when Scott Morrison was in the pub in, in Newcastle when a punter somehow managed to get through the security and, and start berating him, that it made big news. Um, once upon a time, that wouldn't have made big news because the politicians were leaving themselves exposed to that all the time. So it doesn't provide you with an opportunity to see how they react to serious questions from members of the public because a lot of the questions that the media ask, and, and I am part of the media, are not the questions that the public want to ask. You know, the public have a very different idea of what's important to them than what maybe some of the uh, media have. And I think that's what's sadly missing from election campaigns now. And and I don't know that if you come into an election campaign not knowing who you're going to vote for, that at the end of six weeks you're going to be any the wiser. In fact, I doubt that you'll have any folk, any idea at all uh, who you're going to put your vote towards. Yeah, that's true. But, Yasmin, we saw today from news poll there's, I think, 29% of Australians are thinking of voting for a, an independent or a minor party. They're not putting their preferences with the major parties, at least at the moment. Um, uh, that probably speaks to a, a level of um, not having made up their mind but also a, a level of disaffection with the, the sort of pre-digested product that the major parties are putting out there. Is that your interpretation of it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think what's also interesting about the independents is that they know their local community well and it's clear what they can actually do in that space. Whereas I think when we think about the larger parties, it's what are they doing on a wider level? But then as, as we see with both Albo and ScoMo, I think what they claim and promise to do often falls flat and that, that message isn't communicated. So I think what's interesting about the independence is, you know, that idea of transparency, that idea of integrity and restoring trust to politics. And if we see the levels of trust in politics, it is low. It actually went up during the pandemic, which is understandable. We put our faith, our lives in the hands of politicians. But now here we are after the uh, pandemic and it's pretty disappointing performances across the board. Um, I also think with independence, it's it's they're not just independents, they're women. Um, and I also think that signals something about the tone shift in this election, that what happened with last year around Much for Justice and that movement, that wasn't an anomaly, that wasn't a blip. It triggered something in women to say enough is enough and to mobilise and demand change. Now, in saying that, the independents, um, you know, even though they are women, they are also wealthy white women, um, which is I think also still a marker of who can get into politics, which is people with time, money, connections. Um, so we still don't really see kind of minority voices in this space, but I, I still think it's, a, it's to me, something that's exciting and something that should strike a lightning bolt in our election right now to, to push them outside of the, the way that we, you know, status quo um, go about elections. They need to wake up and, and respond to what's happening now. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, Maria. I mean, um, we we see these candidates coming up. They 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 there have been independents around, or people running as as independents in election campaigns since time immemorial. But there's a, there's a different qu- sort of character and quality to what's going on at the moment. It's it's professional women who have mostly achieved things in their lives already, and who are now looking to step into the parliamentary sphere. Uh, they're advocating policies that the major parties, in, in the case of most of these teal independents, that the Liberal Party has, uh, has, has not lived up to. And they're, they're saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm basically a, you know, a middle class Liberal voter who feels the Liberal Party has left me, who feels the Liberal Party has abandoned its, its, its liberalism. Um, that, that's, that's making for a pretty compelling message in the current circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think I, I would agree with that. Um, and I guess I would add two things. One is um, if we sort of take a really long kind of view, uh, we sort of see that uh, phenomena in politics can be kind of uh, cyclical, right? So not repetition in the same kind of way, but we sort of see um, arcs. And and the last time we saw, I guess, the groundswell of, of women choosing to kind of step up and participate in politics uh, was at the sort of tail end of the, the second wave feminist um, movement um, and many women who had uh, – 
worked as activists or just for their community decided to move into politics. So they moved into local politics and state politics. We got all those female premiers, for example, um, out of that, Joan Kerner and, and um, Carmen Lawrence and, and, and uh, that, that wave of, of women. I think what is interesting about this current wave, and I guess what I would add to what Mark has sort of said, is, is to me it, it looks like at the federal level at least, um, that the moderate faction has effectively lost too many policy battles. Um, you know, you could argue over the last 20 years, but definitely the last um, 10 years. And uh, and there is like a, a reckoning now, which is, if you think about it, extraordinary. Some of the seats- this, this reaches back into sort of John Howard's dominance yes. of the Liberal Party, doesn't it? And his success and really just sort of crushed the moderates out of the out of the party. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think- I mean, I think that's actually historically a, a, an important point to kind of make is that John Howard was the first what we would kind of call a small C conservative leader of the Liberal um, Party. Prior, prior to that, uh, you know, it was led by um, what we would kind of call liberals, smaller liberals um, or the moderate faction uh, now. And John Howard um, liked to talk a lot about how he had a broad church, but really um, the moderates were generally on the losing side on many policy um, debates, especially those pointy, sharp ones around asylum seekers, you know. And, and some of the wins the moderates were able to achieve, for example, getting children out of detention, um, you know, were important and significant. But the overall architecture of that policy didn't really budge, you know. If you can remove children from protection, that is good. But you still have the whole architecture of the asylum seeker system in which many moderates, doctors, wives, kind of candidates, these kinds of female candidates who, who, who you know, are for integrity and for the environment and so on and so forth, you know, they lost on that. They lost on climate change. They, they um, haven't really been able to um, use their numbers um, to, to effectively sort of shift the dial um, within the, the Liberal Party and that's partly to do with the fact that I guess they do not use the same kind of aggressive tactics that the far right did, for example, in, in blowing up several governments over climate change. Um, but we are now at the reckoning where we are facing the situation where the Liberal Party may actually lose seats that they have held since Federation, which is extraordinary. I wonder if 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 it's – I mean, this gender thing is quite interesting, um, Yasmin. I wonder if it's about belief as well. I mean, if we think about that process that was happening, even if we go back to those moderates that uh, – the, the prominent moderates from that Howard era, from that early Howard era and before, people like Ian McPhee and Fred Cheney and I suppose – I suppose Malcolm Fraser to some extent, Andrew Peacock, who was leader. Um, there, there were, uh, those sort of people just sort of almost have got, kind of got bludgeoned out of the party in the end. Um, and it was right at the time, or this period, sort of coincides with the time when Labor is addressing this gender question and thinking about how does it, how does it reframe its rules and eventually in the late 90s adopts um, affirmative action policies. I wonder if that's kind of, you know, the key driver here for um, sort of alchemizing the point about losing fights but also representation. So a modern Liberal Party needs to actually represent the community and the moderates had lost those sorts of arguments and there weren't too many of them left. And we now see the, the crossbench populated by a number of people who might have been moderates in the Liberal Party at some at one stage in the past, but now they are sitting firmly on the crossbench. They're outside the party. God, that's a bloody long question. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good for me, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember when I heard murmurs that Peter Dutton would go for it again um, to try to to claim the top seat, and I remember thinking, if that happens, they're losing the election because they are so out of touch with, I think, what the average Australian is thinking and feeling about this. But this is what happens when you're in politics, you're in Canberra, you're in Parliament House, it's funny because if you walk around Parliament, it almost feels like removed from what's happening in the community. It's a different space. And I think if you're in that space 24-7, you start to think that it's just a push and pull between, you know, the moderate and, um, you know, even more conservative faction and you, you lose what is actually happening and, and what people are, are thinking and feeling on the ground. And one example of this is the debate around people who are transgender that's happening right now, which I think is frankly such a weird thing that we are hyper 
fixating on this. And I think what the candidate said, by the way, is, is wrong. Of course, it's wrong. But you see that even within the Liberal Party, this is what they're focusing on right now. And, and I find that, you know, it, it's really interesting. It, it almost moves them moves it away from where the needle should be in terms of the priority issues that we should be focusing on and, and whether that be the COVID recovery, climate change, domestic violence, you can go on. Um, but I think what it does, and, and we, we also saw this in the um, uh, same-sex marriage plebiscite, is that it, it, um, it, I guess it confuses the message. It means that they don't speak clearly. They speak in very cautious and ambiguous language to appease everybody in the party, and that gets lost in translation. And I think both major parties are guilty of that too. I wonder whether, though, um, Australia is now starting to shadow what's happening around the rest of the world. I mean, there's been a definite shift to the right, especially if you look in in Europe. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening in France right now. Um, If you look at what happened in Hungary a couple of weekends ago, if you have a look at what's happened in Austria, um, have a look at what's happened in the UK. you know, there's been a definite shift to the right, and and I wonder. You make the, the the very good point about this transgender issue, and and I mean, there's very little doubt that this candidate's sort of a stalking horse in in many ways. That that she's been put up. Scott Morrison has said, um, I don't agree with her. You know, the way that she's phrased it, but I'm not going to shut her down, and I'm not going to join the pile on because I'm sure that he thinks out there in in some electorates, it's going to win him votes. Um, so it's a dog whistle in that sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that that's 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 the way that it's been played. But it's a pretty high cost one, isn't it? I mean, Warringah was a, an absolute jewel of the Liberal Party up until Zali Stegall came along. But I think they've written that off, haven't they? I think they've written Warringah off well, they for haven't. now. <laughs> well, they haven't. well, they certainly did once they couldn't get the pre-selection stuff sorted, right? Yeah. Um, you know, which is. Was a deliberate tactic and emblematic of some of the deep problems they've got within. But yeah, it's that's it's quite fascinating to see because the the logic of that is obviously that um, Warringah itself might be lost, but the the controversy around the candidate and the ability to then talk about this issue mm. as, as if it is a mainstream national concern up there with um, you know cost of living or climate change or um, uh, you know the national security as the as the government would like to frame it, um, perhaps less so today. Given and and, and there are a lot of voters out there who don't want to spend their time crawling through the, 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 the economy figures, economic figures, et cetera. But when they hear people talking about hot button issues like this, they do switch on and they think, right, yeah, this is, this is something I feel strongly about. I like what they're saying about, about it. Uh, this is the party I want to support. I mean, yeah. it's, it's crass, but it's, it's the way it is. I'm sure it does appeal to to a certain subset of voters, but I wonder I wonder how effective it is ultimately when um, people's um, everyday lives and their experiences of the cost of living and and you know fears of inflation and interest rate rises, which translate directly in their ability to buy their children shoes and to buy their kids food, um, whether or not it actually just irritates people. You know, it's like it's 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 not kind of um, what the average Australian would consider to be the core business of government, which is to ensure that I can get on with my life and my kids will be okay. But isn't isn't Morrison in a sense? It's almost like it doesn't really matter what the actual issue is. It's a it's it's something around which he can make that kind of dog whistle type. Uh, Sort of point that he's made, which is that um, I won't be part of the, the the pile on. She shouldn't be cancelled. People shouldn't, as he said today. People are tired of walking on eggshells around these issues. I mean, it's all that you know. John Howard had his own way of talking about this as well. Called it political correctness, and in relation to the indigenous uh, uh, failures, he referred to that as um, you know the black armband view of history and so forth. So this speaks to a kind of a latent. In, in in his construction anyway, a latent but mainstream view. Well, I think the word dog whistling, like you said before, is the right one. And this is a tried and true tactic in elections to create fear of the other. And this is not the first time. If you look back, it's you know fear of asylum seekers, fear of African gangs, um, fear of Muslims and terrorism. It's the same old thing. And I think we see that on the right is particularly guilty of this method. And if you see a voter who might not be politically engaged and they don't know the facts in front of them, they might see that and think that it is a 
true threat. So I think that's where that messaging from the left has to be really, really strong and stand firm against that and to call it out for what it is and to not give it the legitimacy and air that they're trying to give it. It it does, I think, if you think about it, um, kind of put up in lights that he doesn't want to talk about his record. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's possibly true. Or, well, he's, or he's banjo playing. He doesn't want to fit. Ukulele. Ukulele, was it? Yeah. Anyway, I can't remember. It was just so good. Uh, <laughs> just on the African gangs thing, it, it, it made me think of how much I miss Christopher Pine in the in the political discourse because I remember when he was doing a doorstop somewhere and, you know, Dutton had made this point about African gangs in Melbourne. There was Pine doing a doorstop in Melbourne and someone, some bright journalist said, uh, Mr Pine, are you, are you concerned about going out for dinner tonight? Are you worried about your safety? And he goes, no. Why should I be? <laughs> and then he's, oh, all the gang thing. Oh, no, I don't worry about that. Um, he completely diffused the whole credibility of the argument in, in, in it was just so, so humorous. It was like, that was like when um, on the first day of the campaign when Albanese stuffed up the figures and someone went to John Howard and his first reaction was, so what? Exactly. And then you got a very important phone call saying, what do you mean, so what? Uh, get back out there and tell them that this is really bad. This means a lot. <laughs> yes. He was absolutely right, though. So what? Yeah. Yes. Well, we'll come back to that. Let's take a quick break there and we'll be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's take a question first. Let's start the second half of the question from an audience member, which is not something we can normally do. Uh, my name is Alan. I've also moved from Melbourne, so I know the comments about the African gangs. I was actually out on dinner that night. I was like, oh, well, I need to go home soon then. It's pretty unsafe as it was just it was a Friday busy night. Anyway, my question is about, you know, the rise of independent candidates such as, you know, Allegra Spender, Zoe Daniel and all that with Climate 200 and a sort of like kind of challenge to blue ribbon seats. So I guess my question is on the other side. How, what would it take for an independent candidate to take a red ribbon seat, a safe Labour seat? So, for example, in Fowler, uh, they parachuted Christina Keneally in and now you've got um, Dai Lee, who ran for the Liberals in 2011, running as independent. So what would you think be the factors in trying to, you know, siphon lab- safe Labour voters, especially multicultural communities like myself being Vietnamese Australian, into kind of winning seats like Fowler, Parramatta, Fraser, Maribyrnong, and all, the, all those sort of like really working class places that have become quite gentrified in the last decade or so? Um, because we hear a lot about Warringah and Wentworth, but what about the other side? Look, it's a really good question, and uh, obviously, if anyone else wants to add to this, but the um, the most celebrated, I think, the short answer is it takes an element of surprise, and the most uh, celebrated case of that was Oxley in 1996, where the disendorsed Liberal candidate, therefore running as an independent, what was her name un- again? Uh, I'm just coming to that. <laughs> uh, she um, she won what was I think at the time the safest Labor seat in the country. Uh, and her name was Pauline Hanson, of course. Um, and she only lasted one term because it's actually, you know, which proves, in a sense, proves the point. She was the exception that proves the rule, really. It is extremely difficult to win in a two-party preferred system in the lower house. Uh, and funnily enough, it's, it is those safe seats where it tends to be easier to do than the marginal seats. Like Joe Dyer, for example, who's running in Boothby uh, in South Australia, probably has no chance of winning 
that seat because it's a 1.4% Liberal seat. So Labor's got a very good, especially if we take the South Australian state election figures, Labor has a very good chance of picking up that seat. The Independent, irrespective of how good she is, probably doesn't have a chance. So it's it's a really good point um, that uh, that you make there about uh, how it's going, how it's happening in the Liberal Party at the moment and, and may be successful, Maria, but um, uh, but we don't see it on the Labor side as much. Yeah, so I think um, Yasmin kind of put her finger on um, two of the dimensions um, as to why we're not seeing this in Labor seats at the moment, like the seat of Fowler, like you suggested, and that is um, seats, blue ribbon seats um, generally have people who are wealthier and it costs a lot of money to be a candidate, even for a major party. Um, and the second is that uh, there tends to be a lot more social capital um, in wealthier seats. Um, so there are more established groups available um, which you can kind of draw into your um, campaign. The, the final thing that is probably the distinction between, say, what's going on in the Liberal-held liberal, liberal held seats and Labor-held seats is that the climate issue is sort of the lightning rod um, that is galvanising um, people to, to, to some sort of action. And I, I'm not sure that um, enough people in seats like Fowler um, would would necessarily be motivated by a, a lack of representation. Um, it probably would require something, um, you know, uh, more emotionally important than something kind of abstract like being effectively and descriptively and substantively um, represented. But, you know, Labor shouldn't worry. It, it is interesting, though, that it comes at the end of essentially nine years of coalition rule. So, so in a sense, there's a protest element to this that you don't really have pertaining to an opposition as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. That actually- is, I mean, that in the sense of climate failure, yes. integrity failure. You know, the things that they are campaigning on are things that they say the government could have done but hasn't. Yes, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a dimension of of um, people feeling that they've been let down. But I think it has been really interesting to um, observe the politics of um, you know essentially white people being parachuted into you know really diverse multicultural seats where uh, you know uh, people who are not white who have been party members for a really long time, done all the sort of hard yards, all the crap that you do to be a candidate, then being sidelined at the at the last minute. Um, but whether or not that would translate into an effective independent campaign, um, I'm not sure all the ingredients are necessarily um, there. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the days where parties could take things for granted are very much over. Thank you very much, sir. Um, let's let's talk about the, the tenor of the campaign and the performance of the media. I'm interested to hear all your views on this because there's quite a uh, debate raging, uh, particularly in social media, a lot of uh, strong criticism of the way the uh, opposition leaders' inability to recall the unemployment figure was reported, how long that ran in as a story, and and I guess – you know, as I said at the start, you know, the, 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 the performative stuff, the formulaic stuff about election campaigns, you know, all these daily press conferences and so forth. What, what do you think, Yasmin? Do you, what, what do the people you're speaking to think about this election campaign? I think people are really tired. I really think they are. I mean, there's this, you know, if you look at the way that the media is is reporting on politics right now, it's that minute by minute update. But to me, and this is talking from my lens as a 23-year-old and having friends who have just come out of uni, they're just starting their jobs, they are not following this extremely closely. Um, I think what they are thinking about and what I think isn't being covered effectively in this election is what has been happening in the past few years. It seems like we're focusing so much on what parties are saying and doing right now, but that is not something that builds my trust. It's saying, what have you been saying before and what have you done before? Um, now, if you, you know, even if you ask me to identify the key policies that they're running with, I would say the Liberals are focusing, of course, on jobs and employment and Labor is focusing on care, so Medicare, childcare, aged care. But I could probably couldn't tell you that much in detail about exactly how they're planning to do that. And I, and I think that is quite concerning. Um, something I also haven't seen, and speaking of what's been happening in the past few years, is we saw major protests led by different groups. So we saw, I mentioned March for Justice, also Black Lives Matter, and also the School Strike for Climate. 
And again, from a youth perspective, that's something that we really resonate with because that isn't something that's happening far away up on the hill. That's something that all our friends participated in, something that was being shared across social media. So, you know, we're focusing on the issues in that regard. And I haven't seen parties acknowledge those kind of debates. And I think they were almost, you know, generational shifting debates about how we understand race and and class and gender and and climate change too. So I haven't seen a responsiveness from, from, you know, across the board to to what's happened in the past few years i've been i mean i've been quite critical already so far about about the media's coverage of this whole election campaign but but when i think about it a bit more maybe they're reflecting what the community wants now in terms of and i say this in that if you go into a, a editorial meeting now at any newsroom in the country the most important person in that meeting is normally your social media manager because they'll come in there and they'll tell you what what stories are getting the most clicks on their website um, and what issues are getting the most uh, most likes and shares. And then newsrooms focus their attention based on that. Um, and it's a sad fact that a, a large percentage uh, of, of the population now, their only news source now is Facebook or Twitter. You know, people people sadly don't don't go back to the mainstream or, as we said today, the lamestream media as as uh, it was coined in in the united states but um and so I, th- I think that's driving a lot of the media coverage now because for newspapers they're struggling to remain relevant anyway um and if they don't get hits on their websites then they're basically going to fade off into the distance and, and not have any major impact anymore and they want to have a say they want to have a sway in this election um, so they focus on these hot button issues that they know are going to get hits on their website and then, and then it, it, it sort of generates more and more conversation. Sadly, that comes at the expense of discussing important issues because it's a fact that I, I think now that climate change don't, doesn't get hits on the website anymore. People are, I think there's a fatigue factor out there of people talking about it, even though it's probably the most important issue confronting us on the planet right now it, it's not a, does, a hot button issue during do, an election do, campaign does that mean that scott morrison has been successful in that strategic shift to net zero by 2050 which seemed risible frankly um when it happened i mean mm. it was apart from being so horrendously late in the game they didn't change a single other internal policy setting or program but it but it does appear to have effectively neutralised. Mm. I'm not saying completely, of course, but it does appear to have substantially neutralised that issue. And Labor has gone a bit further, has a slightly more ambitious approach, but it's, there's not a huge gulf between the two. So, Well, I suspect that the reason why maybe it has less clicks is it's less about the audience appetite and more about how it's framed. And I was looking today actually at both Liberal and Labor's policy around environment and it was very, actually very complex, um, even mm. just to read it. It was very dense. It used jargon. I was seeing energy mix, electrification, and that might be familiar with older generations. But speaking again from my vantage point as young people, mm. that is not something we know a lot about. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that we're ignorant. It's just saying that I guess our, our rhetoric has been more about, you know, things like a carbon tax or things about holding corporations accountable for their you know what they're producing and, and and focusing more widely on the planet so it's also how we're framing this and if we feed into how both parties are framing the issue which is very neutral not focusing on the urgency of the matter treating it as just you know an energy problem we're missing what's actually happening so i also think it's the media's role to put those policies in the context of what's going on and i think climate change is a you know pretty scary and urgent issue that we can generate momentum about greta thunberg did that um so it, it certainly is possible but not if we use the words that they are using maria you do uh, a lot of work on uh, political elites and and the media uh, are a a former political elite as well that are in this space. How do you see media's performance um, in contemporary politics, and particularly in the, in the from what we can see so far in this election campaign? Well, um, I'm not that impressed a lot of the time, and, <laughs> and I guess I guess to go back to this this issue of the gaff, like I think there's a fair argument to say that um, you know it would have been better if Anthony Albanese. Um, if he didn't know the number, could have at least sort of said, 
uh, told us a story about the rough area of where the number is at, right? And I actually really think that these kinds of gotcha questions are, um, they're, they're ultimately really trivial. Um, if we really want to people who can parrot numbers, we should get rid of elected representatives and we should just get technocrats who are really good at this stuff, right? But we don't. We value electing notionally general people, right? they're not really anymore, but, uh, you know, members of the public to represent us because we expect the role of a politician to be someone who can listen to the community, represent that community, deal with stakeholders who deal in jargon and technical language and come and be able to filter that and offer national leadership. And and I think that's what is the problem with some of the way that we cover election campaigns um, and the way that this sort of gotcha kind of uh, politics or, or coverage of the media really kind of lets us down because the test the media is setting, you know, like what's what's the rate of this or what's the rate of that, and both leaders have, have you know, had, had stumbles on that. Well, these are really bad proxies, right, for what actually makes a good leader. Being really good in the media, um, I think we could sort of safely say, given the record of, a, of, a, of prime ministers from both sides of politics, actually doesn't necessarily translate into good governance, does it? So, so it is kind of incumbent on the, on the media to think anew about how it is that they more holistically and contextually assess our political leaders, and I put it to you that knowing a figure uh, is 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 neither here nor there. It's even trivial. even a central figure like that. I mean, we know, right? He knew that the political attack that was coming at him was going to be: you've never held an economic portfolio, you're inexperienced. Uh, this is a you know multi-trillion dollar economy, we're managing it well, our jobless rate is at a historic low, uh, you can't be trusted with this economy. He knew that was coming at him, right? Uh, this was a very predictable question at some point and a key number from the budget only two weeks before. It was surprising and it did feed directly into that government narrative. It says, see, he, he can't be trusted to run the economy. He doesn't even know how many you know, what the jobless rate is, even when it's at a historic low. But, yeah, but, but yeah. does that matter? I mean, did it matter? I don't I mean, think do it does. I mean, do we care? I mean, do we think he's any worse or likely to be any worse at managing the economy because he didn't have on the top of his head what the unemployment figure was? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, you're right. Uh, if you want to lead the country, then you probably should have that um, number at your fingertips. But in the end, I don't know whether people would look at that and go, oh, no, he didn't know that, so I can't possibly vote for him. I, I I, I don't – I mean, I understand – my understanding well, what, was – Okay, it, what about the let, – let's flip it around. What about whether it was a fair question? Do you think it was a, a fair question? Well, I, I, agree, I agree with the – about gotcha questions. I mean, I think we But all, would it have I been a gotcha all, question if yeah, you'd yeah. answered it correctly? It would have just not yeah, known. Yeah, but, but what's the point of the question anyway? I mean, well, this is the, what's the – I mean, big, it's like big, I, think we, all, t- I okay. think we all cheered. I think we all cheered when Adam Bant shut down – the guy at the press club, because we all thought that's how you deal with gotcha questions. I, I don't, I don't see what value. I actually don't see what value they bring to a campaign, and what do they prove about somebody? I mean, we well, could all sit well, there. And, and my understanding was, sorry, Mark, my understanding was that that was a, a three pronged attack on Anthony Albanese that day. All of them from Murdoch based media. They'd gone in there and they asked three questions, bang, 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 at him. Firing them away at him, and and yes, he should have known the answer, but he didn't. And predictably, over the next couple of days, it was in th- that lo- that side of the media, the Murdoch media, that went to town on it. Absolutely went to town on it and said, "This guy is not fit to be prime minister." He didn't know the unemployment numbers and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it was it was a disaster of a day for Anthony Albanese, but in the end. Did it sway voters? Do people actually think this is an important thing, or do people think, okay, next time just say Google it, mate? <laughs> I mean, I think it was damaging because we're still talking about it. And I, I think there is a degree of what you were saying, Mark, that is um, is right in the sense that there might be a, a cohort of voters out there who are looking at Labor and might think, well, yeah, okay, he doesn't know the economic, um, he doesn't know the cash rate. But, you know, Julie Bishop lost the shadow treasurership because she didn't know the cash rate. But does anyone in this room seriously think she wasn't a good minister? 
I mean, I think that's kind of the point. You know, she was sort of bundled out of that role because she froze um, once um, in an interview. I think she got that figure right correct on every single interview she did for the remainder of that day. And she, I, I think you know, she actually. I think she says she actually got the figure right, but expressed it as a question mark and it was the uncertainty yeah. which she got crucified for yeah yeah and I, and I guess that's my point right like these are these are trivial these are ultimately trivial kinds of questions and it's I mean this is where I'd be mean about the media it's really easy to ask this question what's actually really hard is to learn about a policy domain. it's really easy to ask it therefore it's really easy to know that it's coming I mean let me just put the the other frame of this for a moment right you're, you're on an election campaign, you're on a bus, you're taking to these totally orchestrated events. As Ross said before, the, the, the members of the public that are there are fully vetted, signed up, you know, well, not signed up, but, you know, totally supportive of uh, they've been pre, pre-vetted and they're there to uh, appear in the pictures and then you have the press conference and you're not there to do PR for the campaign. You're there to... To um, sell yourself. You, sorry, sell yourself. Well, not necessarily. I mean, let's be fair. You're there to actually get a story into it, and to also test the assertions that are being put forward. When you're the opposition leader and you're saying I should be the prime minister, and the other and the government is saying, well, you, you know, you can't be trusted. There's a there is a there is a trust question that is a proposition that is being put to voters there. And I mean, the same journalists who asked the question of Albanese. Had asked the prime minister at the uh, at the press club the price of milk and a liter of petrol and so forth. I mean I, that that was more gotcha stuff in my view because I don't even know yeah. why. I, I mean I even buy milk and I don't know how much no. it costs. No, it's, it's again it's it's sort of trivial. I didn't know you don't get it in bottles anymore. Probably <laughs> 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 don't give you milk on your doorstep anymore in a bottle. But I, I guess I know, it's, the it's gone I mean, to the- why why the media why don't they just boycott the bus? Like, why are they there? If yeah. it's all bullshit, why are they there yeah. asking bullshit questions? So, you know, surely, surely what is important is that the Prime Minister, whoever he or she is, knows how to ask the right questions of officials, knows how to ask the right questions of, uh, you know, interest groups, knows how to balance the needs of the community. I, I just, that's, you know, Google it is kind of the answer or, You've got technocrats. They've got thousands of public servants, right? Can, can I also yeah. raise something that I think the media hasn't been asking about? So it isn't just about, you know, policy is really important, but as you were saying before, it's also about good governance, good character and good leadership. We saw some appalling ways of treating um, what happened last year around Christian Porter, um, around Alan Tudge, around um, a number of staffers that had come forward with some pretty, you know, horrific um, stories and, and allegations that, w- that wasn't treated with the weight that it deserves. I don't see why we're not looking at the cabinet and at party members more broadly. Why are we just distilling this between Scott Morrison and, and Anthony Albanese? And why aren't we talking about what's actually going on in the parties? I think as voting members of the public, we ought to feel like there are good people representing us. I don't know if we can say that right now. Well, that, 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 that's a... That, that's a very good point. It actually um, raises a, uh, a question that I was going to come to. I think we're getting very close to time here, but I would be interested in getting your views about whether um, young people as a cohort particularly or and women as a cohort are going to be decisive in, in this election. But I'll, I'll, before I, I'll let you think about that, we'll take this one question and then we'll come back to that. Uh, g'day, my name is Jeff. Um, congratulations on your double century. Um, Today, Thanks. I, I, got, I nicked a couple, but, uh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah didn't went through, found a third man quite often. Um, today China announced the security deal the Solomon Islands. Does the panel think that this is a monumental stuff up in foreign affairs and how will it play out in the election? That's a really good question, Jeff. I, I personally think it is a monumental stuff up. Um, it was meant to be called a Pacific step up, but they've managed to turn it into a stuff up. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, personally I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question because it, it – it does that rare thing of injecting foreign affairs, uh, foreign policy into into a domestic election campaign, which doesn't happen much in Australia. And I do think it shows a pattern of a government that has um, that has not been really. I mean, it, it, it bangs on about the, the China situation, the national security atmosphere. We, we we sort of hear about it all the time, and yet some some key development was happening in our supposed backyard, as we like to call it, and the government was sitting on its hands. And then when it did find out about it, it sent a couple of officials there first. 
then eventually it sends reluctantly a junior minister who's not even in Cabinet and who most people, I mean, in ACT we've heard of him, but most of the rest of Australia wouldn't know him from Adam. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I don't think that spoke to a great deal of urgency, but uh, does anyone else want to um, uh, contest me on that? Well, I think it also just highlights the what what is the sort of result of our decade of climate wars you know what's the number one security issue in the pacific climate change because there might be no pacific islands left right um and and perhaps that's um why we might have seen the the lack of action that you've highlighted it is a tough area for federal for one government to try and intervene or to i mean how far do they go how well they could have sent the foreign minister that wouldn't have been that well, yeah. outrageous but even if, even the foreign minister I, I think when you're taking on china um with all great respect to the foreign minister i don't know that, that would have changed the outcome no but all I, that why much. did they send seselja in the end they sent him because kurt campbell was going there from the us and it would have looked ridiculous that australia hadn't even managed to get a ministerial level visit there you know to sort of try and correct the situation but in the end whatever strategy they adopted didn't work Jeff, I'm going to give you a very quick uh, uh, second bite. Yeah, just a comment that um, it was an announcement by China. There was no signing ceremony. There was no um, leader from the Solomon Islands in the ceremony. It was just announced. So, you know, that says a lot. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's an information details-free environment, this. But, yeah, it's a fascinating development in this. And it would be funny or or fascinating to watch how it plays out because at one level it it, it speaks to – you know, that sort of pattern of the government being slow to act and, and arguably government incompetence. At another level, if you flip it around the other way, if Australians don't bother about the details too much, and mm. a lot of voters won't, they'll just see it as evidence that the government is right, that the China security situation is perilous and therefore we need to stick with the government we've got. So I don't know which way that uh, that issue will play out. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, like you said, it's the details. It isn't walking in the U.S.'s shadow. And I think that from a foreign policy standpoint, we tend to do that a lot. Yeah, and we've that, done that's it. where we're, we're really that's increased where, it. That's where we're looking towards. We've got our blinders. We've got our blinkers on. We can't see what's happening around us. And then this result, you know, this result happens. We've come a long way from the country that was finding its security in Asia rather than from Asia. And now, we, we you know, we sort of see this retreat to the Anglosphere and, uh uh, you know, that's what AUKUS was all about. And it's funny today hearing hearing government ministers saying, you know, this doesn't seem to be very transparent. Well, what was transparent about the AUKUS switch? Mm. Tell you what, uh, tell you what, Macron, who happened to be a security partner at the time, didn't know bugger all about it, <laughs> uh, as we saw. Now, look, we're going to have to wrap it be up useful? Here. Wouldn't it be good, Mark, to have a, a prime minister that speaks fluent Mandarin <laughs> right now? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Apparently he's going to Washington, though. Or or is he? Yeah, except that he's not. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or he says he's not. I don't know. Anyway, just a quick one. Do you think, what what do you think, Yasmin, on the youth vote, for example, do you think that that, uh, there's a lot of young people have come onto the role? Um, I think there's a few hundred thousand have come on in the last last seven days. Most of those would be young people coming onto the role for the first time. Yeah, and I absolutely hope that they use their vote and they use their voice. I think, though, as I said about trust, you know, my generation has the lowest levels of trust in our political system. And it's little wonder why when the way that we talk and interact is, you know, like I mentioned, through social media and through, you know, very different from these almost very ancient, <laughs> archaic feelings of, of, of the way that this election is even is even being handled. But I think it's really important. Um, I watched Scott Morrison's campaign video, the one he did on the just before he announced the election. And it was pretty gross that he started mentioning young people as a tool of hope. I don't know if he saw it, but he was saying, I went to a trade school and I asked young people, who wants to start a business? And half of the room put their hands up. That's why I love Australia. And I'm like, what have you done for young people one time when you were government? And I think that's the thing where young people are used as tools of hope, but not actually giving young people the value and weight they deserve. And on that topic of women, I was looking at the uh, approval ratings during March for Justice last year. So when that was happening, approval ratings went down from 62 to to 57 in Morrison's favour and it dropped by 10% in women. So um, whereas with men, it didn't actually move at all, which is another interesting point. So I certainly think the the women's vote as well could make a substantial impact yeah, well, that's going to be fascinating, isn't it, Ross? Because you remember that Wayne Goss comment years ago when he said that uh, voters were waiting for Paul Keating and Labor with baseball bats, you know, on mm. the verandas. Um, they were, in other words, they were quite determined to get rid of the government. 
that, that, that I suppose that's an unknown question about this election. Uh, have, have all of these stories, the ones that Yasmin's just referred to, um, changed sort of almost quietly and in a way that we haven't yet seen the electoral expression of uh, the view of a significant number of people in, in, in the electorate, many of them women? And I don't know that women would feel at this stage that they've been particularly taken notice of. I mean, we, we, we've got four leaders now, all four main political party leaders are all men, which is basically the status quo. It's been like that for a long time with occasional rare blips. Um, and one of the things about this election campaign is that, and I don't know whether it was the same in the last election campaign because I wasn't here for it, but um, all all everything is covered live now, like, yeah, they go out on the hustings and and every press conference they do, and I've noticed that at each press conference the the leader, whether it's Albanese or Morrison, they always have uh, one of their senior female leaders or female ministers or shadow ministers next to them. And uh, Katie Gallagher was there in the early days, standing alongside Albanese. But I don't know that that's enough. I, I still don't. I don't think that's that's cutting it. I think we're not hearing the voice of women, and we're not seeing uh, enough women talking in this campaign about what's important for this very significant part of, part of the electorate. And, and I, I worry that we're going to get to the end of this election campaign and I feel a little bit sorry for these young people who have vote, who've waited for years possibly to come and finally have their chance to have their say and they're greeted with this palaver. Mm. And they're thinking, my God, what was the, what was all the fuss about? What, what's what's in this for me? I can't see anything in here that that excites me about climate change or or any of these big issues. So where do I go? And can I please re- withdraw my name from the electoral roll? <laughs> <laughs> and also, can I mention there was a recent study by Planned National Australia found that fifty nine percent of young women don't even think that Parliament is safe or has isn't that disgraceful? Believe that it became more safe in the past year. So let that be a reflection on where our democracy is right now. Yes, it's fascinating. Uh, fascinating detail that. Um, Maria, Judith Brett wrote very persuasively about um, Bob Menzies's appeal to the women of Australia in The Forgotten Australians and that whole pitch to women as homemakers of the sort of silent middle class and so forth. I wonder if the bookend of that is that women are going to be walking away from the Liberal Party in significant numbers now. Well, increasingly we, we know that women who used to be um, a stronghold of the Conservative vote have across the world um, moved more to the left. Um, and um, I think it is actually kind of interesting that that so much of the subtext of, I guess, what Scott Morrison has been saying to Australian women is kind of along the lines of, I know I'm a bullhead, but, you know, um, I'm really trying. And <laughs> I... <laughs> I I do wonder how was many that a slogan was that a campaign slogan? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm sure they'll call. Um, and and I do wonder how many exhausted women from the pandemic really will give him another go. <laughs> Just on that, Mark, isn't it? In, unless I've missed something, I've not seen anything in the first ten days of the campaign about the pandemic. I've not yeah. seen any discussion about. Um, how it was handled, where where we go. It, it just seems to have been pushed to one side. Mm. I'm really yeah. It's yeah, bizarre. No, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a really interesting point. Just back on that slogan thing, it reminded me of that slogan of New South Wales Labor some years ago that was, I think it was, more to do but moving in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> That's inspiring. <laughs> yeah. We've done nothing but give us a chance to yeah. Yeah, just have yeah. another crack at it, please. Yeah. <laughs> Look, that's um, that's Democracy Sausage again for another week. Uh, thanks to Yasmin Poole, Ross Solly and Dr Maria Teflaga. And thank you for bearing with us for this uh, slightly longer recording. I just couldn't cut it off because the uh, conversation was so interesting. Can I also take a moment to acknowledge and thank Jack Fox and and other people doing the technical work here today? Uh, Jack... Jack is with us in the studio every week and uh, and, and does sterling work there, so um, uh, fantastic uh, assistance from him. Also from Angus Blackman, who is the uh, EP, the executive producer of Democracy Sausage, 
who uh, couldn't be here because he's uh, had to isolate, speaking of uh, of COVID. Um, uh, also like to thank Jane, James Gigaher and his team who wrangled all of the uh, arrangements that needed to be done to make this happen. I'd like to also pick out and make a special thanks to Martin Pierce, who is over here. He may stand up if I can convince him to do so. Martin was the original uh, EP of Democracy Sausage and the driving force behind making it happen and he made made sure that I was there every week. He insisted that, you know, to, to make a podcast work, you have to come out at the same time every week. He even had me doing two podcasts a week for quite a long time until I realised that I was getting almost nothing else done. Um, but uh, uh, Martin's n- no longer here. He's doing some other things, but uh, an absolutely crucial uh, figure in in the development of this podcast. And I'd also like just on that uh, on, in that uh, frame to thank Professors Paul Pickering, Sally Wheeler, Helen Sullivan, and of course the Vice Chancellor Professor Brian Schmidt, all of whom have really backed this podcast all the way through. And uh, it's a you know it's a significant part of the university's outreach. And uh, we really thank you for your enthusiasm for being here tonight for this two hundredth episode, which is you know quite an achievement. So thanks very much. Thank you for listening.